may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! The Manly Warthog Man Cave in the piney woods of north central Florida in God's country. Uh, we are currently waiting to contact our guest today. Hopefully everything will go well. Dean Clancy, who is the Senior Policy Fellow at America's for Prosperity and a Paragon Health Institute Public Advisor. We want to talk about medical care, which I know is on a lot of your people's minds as you get a little older and down the line, perhaps. Uh, we are in the Melvin Law Studio, and um, in, we're protected 24-7, uh, 365 by, of course, uh, Crime Prevention, and brought to you by all our great sponsors. So, uh, I'm going to um, uh, converse with you until we get uh, a little traction going here uh, with our guest and hopefully connect with our guest before too long. I think um, our production will be contacting to see if we can get uh, everything rolling here. Um, We are, of course, um, um, taking a look at a lot of examples of uh, medical care today. Hopefully we have our guest here to talk with us in a minute um, that um, there's a lot of issues with medical care that the biggest one that we don't want to get down the road on too far is the socialization of medicine, which would be in the model. There's our good friend. Hello, Dean Clancy. Uh, Hello. You got a magnificent background there, my man. Where are you? <laughs> well, it's a fake background, uh, but I'm in my home in Sarasota. Well, that'll work. We'll take it. We'll accept it. Man, um, you're in Sarasota. I was just talking while we were waiting to connect with you, sir, that um, uh, the medical world, worst case scenario for any of us, I think, and we've taken up this topic from time to time, is to have socialized medicine. And um, hopefully we can talk about how creepy crawly we are getting near that and how we might extricate itself just as a professional confession, Dean. I'm reached the age where I'm, you know, connected with the Medicare world. And, you know, you know, it's and a lot of our viewers and listeners are in the 55 range up about equally divided between male and female. So young people, of course, think they're immortal. I certainly did for the longest period of time and acted as, as if I were until, you know, you get to falling apart and then you need the best care you can get access to. Sure. And there's a number of issues that uh, start to bury out on you, price of the pharmaceuticals and all and that kind of thing. Uh, right. So we have, we have a good audience for this because um, um, they're, they're in the age group where they're going to be needing this. And if I might just say a couple of things before we start listening to what you have to say with all your research. Now, Obama wants to make Obamacare accessible to non-citizens. I mean, Right. Come on. Come on. Take it away, sir. I'm all ears right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you said Obama 
I think, but you meant Biden. Well, either way, uh, Obamacare, Biden, yeah, Obamacare, yeah, yeah. Well, look, that's a good place to start. Uh, President Biden, uh, he did yesterday announce that he was going to let non-citizens uh, have access to Obamacare uh, and Medicaid, and um, that's almost certainly illegal because those programs have a uh, ban, a statutory ban on non-citizens uh, enrolling. Uh, he's trying to exploit a gray area there where uh, these children who were brought here uh, by undocumented parents but born in the U.S., they have no legal status. Uh, he's trying to claim that they are, quote, lawfully present, unquote. So the lawyers are going to get involved here. My guess is this will almost certainly be blocked in the courts. But it's part of a larger strategy on his part to say, I'm Mr. Healthcare Coverage. Everything I can do to get more people uh, with a health insurance card in their hand. That's what I'm doing. Of course, it's always a government health insurance card. This is part of a, uh, you, I think you called it a creeping uh, takeover, government takeover of health care. That is their goal. And um, Mr. Biden is, as you know, running for re-election. He's already, you know, running. I mean, there's he's not waiting. And he's running on a medi-scare, you know, scaremongering that the Republicans are going to take away your Medicare. And it's interesting, at Americans for Prosperity, we do a lot of polling. One thing our polls have told us recently is the top three issues for Americans are uh, inflation, jobs, and the high cost of health care. About 40% of voters describe the high cost of health care as a crisis. Well, he can't run on inflation or jobs, nor on foreign policy or crime, for that matter. So he's picked health care and he's demagoguing. He's saying Republicans are going to take away your health care. It's not true. There's no Republican in Washington that I know of who is anywhere close to saying let's take away people's health care. So, um, so that's the, the, the groundwork of the presidential debate is, is he's starting with health care and going on the attack. And um, the fact of the matter is Medicare, on which between 60 and 70 million Americans rely, it, it is going broke. The, the hospital insurance trust fund is within 10 years of exhaustion, and something's going to have to change. And his proposal, he's got a proposal to try to save Medicare. He says, I can add 25 years to the life of the trust fund. But the way he would do it is raise payroll taxes on working Americans, and he would cut the Medicare Advantage program, which is an option within Medicare. It's the most popular part of Medicare. Half of Medicare enrollees have signed up for Medicare Advantage, and we can talk about how it works, but basically it's a way to get extra benefits like vision, dental, and hearing at low or no extra cost with a lot of zero premium plans. It's private competing insurers delivering Medicare benefits plus additional benefits. He wants to cut that by nearly $300 billion with a B over 10 years. He doesn't like Medicare Advantage, but he's accusing the Republicans of cutting Medicare. So I put a lot on the table there uh, for you, Ward. Um, the, we're off and running on 24. Medicare is going to be right at the center. There are things we can do to fix Medicare, but it's not the way that, that President Biden is suggesting. Already we got a couple of questions, and one of them is always on my mind, too. Of course, as we add these kind of people to this program, we make it more difficult to see the doctor, one, because right. he's got more people to see. He spends less time with you. And to fend this off, these doctors have formed conglomerates, if you will, 
and now managed by business people rather than doctors. So they have quotas on the number of people they see. Some Many of my old-time friends, I'm of the age when they can retire, took an early retirement because they were asked to ramp up uh, the quota and see more people per day and spend. And they said, listen, these are our people we've taken care of from uh, birth to, to you know cradle to grave. And right. uh, we don't care about that, you know. And also, it became an issue, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you can expand on these things, um, that uh, the not only would you have to see more people, but whether you could see them would be contingent upon whether or not the conglomerate would be paid for seeing them by the government programs. So the decisions to see the patient are less and less done by the physician and more and more by the government. Is there truth to that? Uh, there is. In general, American healthcare has become corporatized. Um, you know, my line is uh, in American healthcare, the patient is not the customer. The patient is the product. The real customers are insurance companies, uh, large employers, hospital corporations or conglomerates, as you call them, uh, and also drug makers, medical device makers, and so on. These large entities, bigness is the uh, essential quality. In American healthcare, big government dominating it all, and the poor patient is lost in the shuffle. So you do get rationing of care, especially in these government programs. Medicaid, which is the health insurance program for the very low income, it's a disaster. Um, Medicare is better, although it's not as good as private commercial insurance. Um, and uh, but but when, whenever the government then sort of deputizes. Uh, corporations to deliver government benefits, uh, you do get these problems. And of course, when the government just tries to do it itself as a bureaucracy, things are even worse. Medicare Advantage is better than traditional 1960s Medicare, but it's still got problems associated with these big insurance companies. So it's nothing's perfect here. The biggest problem is the patient is getting lost. The patient is not really the customer. So how do we change that? Well, we need to give patients more choice. There needs to be more competition. They, the, the insurance company should be uh, competing for your business. And if you don't like the business, you should be able to fire them and go to someone else. That works pretty well in Medicare Advantage, for example, which is a competitive system. Uh, but where there's no competition, you get long wait times, high prices, you know, Obamacare doubled the uh, insurance premiums for, for people, it tripled the amount they have to pay out of pocket for care. Um, your ability to see a doctor or, or, or go to a hospital that's close to you that you or that has high quality that you want to go to, that's shrunk uh, because of Obamacare. All these problems are ultimately traceable to bad government policy. The solution at Americans for Prosperity, we call it, let's give people a personal option not a public option, not Medicare for all, not more government. Let's have a personal option. And that means more choice and control. You know, uh, let patients, for example, save and pay for healthcare tax-free with health savings accounts. So out-of-pocket expenses, you get a tax break for those, and you pick what you're going to buy. And, um, uh, for example, right now, current law forbids seniors, forbids people on Medicare to contribute to a health savings account. That's crazy. We should eliminate that law. Let every senior 
save and pay for health care tax-free. That will stretch their health care dollar farther, and they'll shop for value. And when you do that, costs tend to come down. We should also let people use a direct primary care, which is a new subscription-based model where you just hire some doctors to work for you, and um, there's no insurance company meddling, no government meddling. It's just you and your doctors. And, you know, a question I ask people is, does your personal doctor give you his personal cell phone number so you can text him at all hours with questions? Probably not, unless you subscribe to a DPC practice, in which case the doctors are eager to be available to you to answer your questions. They spend more time with you, and it's great for them because they don't have to spend a lot of time filling out insurance or government paperwork. They just deliver health care, which is what they got into medicine to do. So HSAs, DPC, and a series of other reforms, and, and, and of course, reforms to Medicare. We can cut out a lot of waste there and prolong the life of the Medicare trust fund. We can do this all without having to raise taxes or cut people's benefits. Well, I'm a Dean Clancy, and already we got the line lit up here. I want to pass along some concerns. Um, the question about how this relates to the national debt, which uh, this is a very sharp person here with numbers, uh, says the Medicare trust funds and all the federal programs were re- actually broke uh, $32 trillion of national debt. Uh, right. That's one issue. The other issue is uh, by another uh, long-term listener who these people have been through the healthcare system. I know these people. And so naturally, as I said at the height of the show, this, they're listening to this. How much would healthcare benefits cost for the dreamers? Um, there's a couple of issues right off the bat we can respond with. One, yes, we are broke. Um, so, you know, why doesn't everybody admit that? Of course, that's a different issue. Um, and then well, what would the dreamers cost? You got any figures on that, Dean? I don't have figures, but we could uh, do a back of the envelope right here. If you assume that the average uh, health insurance plan in America right now uh, costs, I'm going to say, I'll say $12,000. That's a conservative pile on the low end estimate. So $12,000 and multiply that by the number of dreamers. um, That would give you something like the, well, on Medicaid, it's only about a $6,000 value subsidy. So we'll we'll just say they're on Medicaid, uh, $6,000. If there's 100,000 dreamers, no, there's more than that. Let's say there's a million dreamers uh, times $6,000. So that's going to be $6 billion right there with a B. Um, you know, we I can think I saw reason. a number like that, Dean, uh, when I was looking on one of my computers here at some of the uh, emails coming through. I think I did see that number pretty close. I think your Kentucky windage there. <laughs> 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 you know that term, my man. Yeah, I love that term. Oh. That at Kentucky Windage, I think that's what I've seen on one of my uh, uh, apps here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, I'll take luck over skill any day. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's called, hey, listen, you're as good as the government at coming up with these numbers. What the heck? <laughs> Whose leg that's are we great. pulling, right? That's great. Whose leg are we pulling? Um, what about drugs? You know, how did that fit into it? Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the drug companies say, well, we we got to charge up front all this money to uh, get back our R&D. As I've heard that tale. Right. right. Can you talk about that? Well, there is some truth in that. I mean, they, they spend a lot of money to develop new drugs. And so they want to get the money back. And, and, and they do all that investment in, with the hope that they'll get a patent. A patent is a government-granted monopoly. Monopoly means they can charge what the market will bear. But uh, the founders said, look, we want such monopolies, but they have to be temporary, you know, 
Uh, for a long time, it was 17 years. Now it seems to have evolved to 20 years. The, the drug companies, I think, do deserve to recoup their investment costs. The problem is they have found ways to game the patent system, so they prolong those patents. They keep extending them. So, well, for example, my wife uh, uses a, a drug for an autoimmune condition that's effectively been on patent, patent for 40 years. And it's because the, the, the patent system um, basically allows them to make minor changes, you know, in dosage and delivery. And, you know, the joke is they change the color of the pill and, uh, and they get another patent and they extend the life. Sometimes they um, will retire the drug that had the first patent and then come up with a, an almost the same drug and get a patent on that. And, and so you can't get that first drug as a generic. They'll also pay generic competitors not to bring a competitor to market. That's called pay for delay. And um, we need reforms there because the drug companies do play games. But I do think that if you just impose government price controls, which is what President Biden and Democrats did in this last big bill at the end of 2022, the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, uh, what it will do is it will discourage research and development. And in fact, all of the experts, left, right, and center, agreed that's what will happen. They just disagreed about how bad the problem will be. The Congressional Budget Office on the sort of low end said, well, maybe there'll be five or 10 fewer drugs developed over the first 10 years. And uh, other experts at the University of Chicago said, well, no, it's probably going to be more like 100 uh, new cures or new drugs will not be developed in the first 10 years. It, you'll slow down innovation. You're killing the goose that lays the golden egg. We do need to get drug prices down. We need more generic competition and those patent monopolies as soon as uh, they expire and in uh, these games like uh, pay for delay. And if you do that, then drug prices come down. We have a comment here. I'm passing along to you. Um, this uh, listener, long-term listener says, well, wouldn't we need subsidies if we were paying the true cost of Medicare in the first place? Uh, wouldn't all plans start with some sort of subsidy? Or what you're talking about would be, how would that work? And I guess this is what's on the mind of the listener. The government subsidizes people's health insurance in a lot of different ways. So, so Medicaid, for example, uh, splits the cost with states. And as I said, for the feds, it's about $6,000 a person a year that they're spending on Medicaid. And then on the ACA, which is these uh, exchanges, you go in and you buy insurance online at healthcare.gov or your local state exchange, and the, and the taxpayers kick in a huge amount of, of the cost. That can be even more, more expensive for the taxpayers. Those are subsidies that, to encourage people to get health insurance, help them to afford it. And then Medicare is also a subsidy in a sense. Uh, people did pay payroll taxes, of course, and they want to get that money uh, back through Medicare. Most people get a lot more back out than they ever paid in in payroll taxes. Um, so there's subsidies, but they're very different. Oh, and by the way, workplace health care, you are also subsidized through the tax code. Um, that that health care that you get in the workplace, um, that's worth about $2,000 a year in tax breaks. You, 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 you pay $2,000 a year less in taxes than you would uh, because the government basically excludes that from your income. All of these are subsidies. The problem is they're all complicated and unfair. Like at the workplace, the more money you make, the bigger the subsidy you get from the government. So the wealthy people are getting the biggest subsidy and the poor are getting the least. It's not a fair system. It's a very complicated system. What we really ought to do 
is simplify the whole set of um, of subsidies. I would exclude Medicare from this, but for everybody under 65, they just get um, basically, say, $4,000 in federal subsidy for health insurance or to pay out-of-pocket expenses. They can use it any way they want. They can use it any place they want, in the workplace or online. What they don't spend, they should be able to keep. That will encourage them to be frugal with, the, with their money, and then they can put it in a tax-free health savings account and save it for future healthcare expenses, and even build up a nest egg for future expenses. Then when you get to Medicare age, you've got money in the in your savings account that you can use for out-of-pocket healthcare. And um, if we did that, this, everybody would get the same amount for the subsidy. We'd actually spend less than we do now, and it would be fairer, and it would be more efficient. Healthcare costs would come down. There would be more competition. It would be a better system. You know, you touched on something interesting a moment ago. Uh, Dean Clancy here from great research here with us on uh, medical issues. So if you have a chat question, let me see it. I'll pass it along. We'll talk about it. You know, you talked about a team of doctors. And what I was thinking with the money you're, you know, you could put aside in this program that you are talking about, you would then hire your own team. Would you not? I mean, that would be the concept. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for that because I'm to the age where I sort of have a team that looks after me. Um, the guys I know personally uh, have their cell phone numbers. Um, that's very unusual. Uh, because, but I know them, you know, I know them. And they, don't, they know I won't, quote, unquote, abuse it. You know, I won't call up to chit-chat during work hours or anything like that. That's not the deal. But I'm sure there would be more physicians if there did what I've talked about with previous guests Teleconferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, some talk about that a little bit because we don't need to go, particularly in the days of Zoom now, like we are. Do do we? We don't need to go into the office all that much. Lots of times, what we want to do is talk to the doctor and and say, "Well, this is my. This is what I'm looking at. It's probably even you know with these patient portals and things that mm-hmm. are going on, you can see all your medical records yourself. Right. Right. So, you're really, yeah, you're touching on telehealth. Uh, the pandemic, I think, made uh, most Americans aware of telehealth. It's existed for years, but there's been barriers to it. Basically, in government programs and insurance, traditional insurance, they try to prevent you from using telehealth. They think it's too easy to get access to care. They're afraid that'll just lead to more claims being filed and more, you know, the, the insurance company makes less money or the taxpayers in, in the case of government programs pay out more. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's penny wise, pound foolish. We've done studies at Americans for Prosperity. We did a, a, a review and we partnered with the Progressive Policy Institute, a left-wing group. We're a right of center. We, we got together and we did a review of Medicare claims during the pandemic. And what we found was because everyone was, was suddenly using telehealth, um, emergency room use went down and uh, therefore, Medicare saved money because of telehealth. And that, I think, helped. is helping to convince people in Congress that, you know, this is actually a great tool that we should allow people to use. It'll save money. It prevents infections because, you know, you can't pass an infection through a computer screen. And it reduces unnecessary visits to the emergency room, which is a very expensive way to get health care. And... Um, by the way, you mentioned the, the the team of doctors. That's the same thing I'm describing as direct primary care, or direct patient care. You hire the doctors to work for you, and they do give you their cell phone number, and they do make themselves 
available. And guess what? They do telehealth standard because it's more convenient for the doctor, too. He can be sitting in his shirt sleeves at home while you're in your shirt sleeves at home and you just talk to each other and you get information. Telehealth, by the way, is more than just Zoom calls. It's also remote monitoring of your vital signs. You know, the doctor could have a thing on his phone and he sees you've got a heart palpitation or something. You know, he gets the signal at the same time you do. And so he can intervene immediately. He can say, you know what, you need to get to the hospital right now. That's telehealth too. And uh, in, in the direct patient care model, sort of the cash pay model, that's standard. So that's good medicine. That's the future. And that's what we want. And we want it for everybody, including people on Medicare. So, uh, so yes. Uh, now I've forgotten where you were going with your question. Well, where, where I was going is with um, a, a, a different way of conversing with the physician without having to be in the bricks and mortar. And right. um, that, that's basically what I was saying. And yeah. Um, well, and can I just add one point there? Yeah. Um, I was talking with one of these doctors who does direct patient care here in Florida. And I asked him, no, do you have the problem of people just wasting your time, you know, asking you trivial questions at all hours and so on? He said, actually, no, no, I don't. Most people are very respectful. Um, so I have plenty of time to deal with the people who have real serious questions. And it works out just fine. Well, it's uh, another question we've got coming up here. And this is from a longtime viewer, a good buddy of mine, who uh, unfortunately was uh, coming through this experience of Agent Orange, you know, which mm. has affected so many people. So many of my friends uh, have been affected by Agent Orange. And they found themselves going to the VA, of course, which is understandable, but sometimes also wanting a choice to go private as well. How's that work? Is that doable? Well, it's a big and very important issue. The veterans health care benefits programs are uh, they're very bureaucratic <clears throat> and the quality of care is very low in you know compared to other options. Uh for some uh, veterans it's a real lifeline and I'm not saying we should get rid of it, but it's it's low because it's it's basically government bureaucracy. Now, there there have been so many reports of people with very long wait times, you know, people even dying while waiting in line to to get an appointment with the VA, uh, that Congress intervened. And we were involved in that. Uh, we have a sister organization called Concerned Veterans for America, and we work together with them a lot. And they uh, helped pass legislation in the last couple of years that basically says, look, if you've been on a VA waiting list, more than a certain amount of time, then you have a right to take your VA benefits and go see a private doctor. You don't have to wait in line for the government benefit anymore. Now, it turns out the VA bureaucrats are now gaming the system and fudging the statistics because it makes them look bad and they're afraid their budgets will get cut if they can't say, oh, look, we're, we're keeping the waiting times down. But in fact, they're playing games. So that needs to be policed. But, uh, but the VA, um, really the here, here's the, the, the reform principle we should follow. Fund patients, not institutions. Fund patients, not insurance companies. Fund patients, not bureaucracies. Give the money to the person. Put reasonable restrictions on it so they don't use it for cigarettes and strip clubs. You know, make sure they use it for what you want them to use it for, healthcare in this case. And then let them choose. Let them pick the doctor they want to go to. Let them pick the facility. Uh, that's not hard to do. And um, when you do it that way, people make good choices for themselves because it's like they're spending their own money. 
And uh, so the VA needs reform, and the key is to fund the veterans, not the bureaucracy. We're talking with Dean Clancy here, who is uh, with the uh, senior policy fellow at America's for Prosperity and a Paragon Health Institute public advisor. So um, check in the chat line. We've got a break. If you, if you don't mind, hang with us after oh. the break. We're going to pay, uh, pay the bills and uh, do a little bit of the weather and uh, – and uh, pretend we're wherever you are in the background, which you really aren't at to begin with, but that's okay. Uh, this is artificial intelligence, is it not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 2001 yeah. A Space Odyssey. Yeah. We'll be right back uh, uh, on the Ward Scott Files after we uh, break for the weather and the sponsors. Be right back. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. Hey dads and kids, join head coach Billy Napier at the Gainesville All-Pro Dad Experience. Saturday, April 22nd at 9 a.m. at the University of Florida Sanders Practice Facility and Fields. Learn fatherhood tips and participate in activities with your kids while rotating through stations on the field. It's only $25 per family, so register today at allprodad.com slash events. The Gainesville All-Pro Dad Experience is brought to you by the Florida Department of Education, Dairy Council of Florida, and Tyson. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, Thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth. All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. 
All right, welcome back to the Ward Scott Files with Ward's Weather Report here, brought to you by Lewis Oil, our good friend, Alinda Lewis, who claims she's only 29 years old and will never grow a bit older. Therefore, she'll not need any of this health care stuff, we hope. But be it as it may, here in the piney woods of north central Florida in God's country, we're going to go up to the mid-80s today, which is okay, except we think, and I'm a country boy, as you know, we're here on the, uh, um, the out, out in the, by the San Francisco Forest here, with our cattle and pastures. But um, I hate to tell you this, but I think we're entering a drought. We're worried about this uh, here on the farm world that I live in. And um, South Florida, meanwhile, doesn't need that rain. What does Fort Lauderdale need all that rain for? I mean, for crying out loud, it's uh, two feet. I never heard. It's one, you know, incredible statistics. I'm assuming our guest is okay, uh, is um, over on the Sarasota side, but they've been blasted once in a while too. So it's um, more than two feet of rain in South Florida wrecked all kinds of havoc down there. Uh, the land had been taken off from that Fort Lauderdale International Airport. I don't imagine anybody ever thought that would ever come their way. So um, that's the way it is. You know, it's a uh, climate change, right? I, they can't even get the weather right. That's why I can't blame in a buy into climate change. I mean, my God, they told us that yesterday here we were going to get absolutely Lauderdale get it. And they didn't tell me. They were going to get it. So, so much for climate change. What a hoax perpetrated on mankind. Hey, golly, that's my two cents. I'm sticking to it. Uh, we're talking <laughs> We're talking with our guest today. He really is a got uh, – uh, uh, here's, another, here's another saying I'm sure you're aware of, uh, <laughs> uh, Dean. you got a burr under your saddle about health care. And who doesn't? Um, we don't want it to drift off, as I uh, suggested a little bit ago, to the uh, socialized medical world. Uh, once upon a time, I interviewed on the show a lady who was a doctor in Canada, and you know this story all too well, who would come down here for her medical care. Uh, had another friend who was a doctor in England who would never dream of waiting in line, even though he were a, was a doctor, and would come here for medical care. In his case, it was a hip replacement. So, you know, I... In many ways, what we're talking about, the end result had better wind up on that on that landing ground. Are we are we, we're kind of a, uh, what are we doing? Uh, a whistling to Dixie, as they say. What's your <laughs> what's your? Uh, I want to I want to broach this subject. What we talk about on this show all the time, Dean. I have a lot of guests. I have congressmen on here and whatnot. Leadership, the absence of leadership. People don't trust the government. People don't trust the president. People don't trust the media. I don't blame them. You know, if this show is an audience, it's because we try to never pull anybody's leg. You may not like what we say, but we're going to say it. You follow me? So, oh, yeah. What's it going to take? I don't see the leadership to make this happen, my man. Well, you're right. Our politics is at a low ebb. Uh, feels like a repeat of the 1970s in a lot of ways. Um, Congress is broken. You know, Congress doesn't really make policy anymore. They pass these big spending bills, occasionally a big tax cut, and occasionally uh, something like the government price controls and Medicare that I mentioned earlier. Um, <clears throat> but in general, Congress is broken. So no real change happens. So we're here talking about Medicare going uh, broke in 10 years. And you don't see any movement to do anything. And Joe Biden's response is, let's raise uh, payroll taxes and cut the Medicare Advantage program, the one part of Medicare 
uh, that really works. And, um, and so it's a real problem. And you talk about leadership. I do think ultimately the, the people, you know, have to uh, hold their representatives accountable. And uh, that means they have to throw out of office those who are just simply not solving the problem. It's, it's really hard because uh, now we've got questions about ballot integrity and we've got, uh, you know, people are busy and they can't follow all the issues. And, of course, they hear a lot of stuff that's just propaganda. Anyway, at Americans for Prosperity, we remain hopeful. You know, our goal, and, and this is what we do, we, we knock on doors, we educate the grassroots, we talk to policymakers, we help draft legislation. We also endorse candidates. We make political contributions. We're full service in trying to advance ideas that remove barriers between you and the American dream. And it's hard work. Um, but um, we're hopeful because, you know, Americans are ultimately a really great people. And we have a great system if we would just follow the rules. You know, we need to follow the Constitution. That's that's a big problem. Um, and but we're not going to change that overnight or in one election. But we have to keep moving in the right direction. So, for example, the healthcare reforms that I've talked about, we're passionate about them because healthcare is such a big part of our economy. It's the main driver of our federal uh, deficits and the national debt. It's impinging on our ability to fund national defense and national security. Um, you know, uh, the money doesn't grow on trees. So we have to make tough choices. And if I can just segue here into back to Medicare, where we started earlier, you know, if we would just, for example, think about not giving Medicare benefits to billionaires, you know, with a B. Right. Jeff, Jeff Bezos doesn't need the help. And uh, if thing is, and if you, if you maybe you also include millionaires in that, you know, multimillionaires, you can save like half a trillion dollars over 10 years, which will add decades to the uh, Medicare trust funds life, you wouldn't have hurt anybody who actually needs the help at all. You would simply have made a sensible decision to not give away money that we don't have. Well, you know, that piqued my interest a little bit ago when you were talking about it. And I picked up on that. I'm glad you circled back to it. The wealthy get more Medicare and don't need it. And the poor don't get it and need it. The other thing is, um, of course, cost shifting. We haven't talked about that. The degree to which, therefore, the people who don't have medical care use the emergency rooms as their primary care physician. And boy, I have friends who are hospital administrators. And that is called, I think, in the industry, cost shifting. Yeah. Uh, what can we do? You know, I don't. If you sure. Yeah, no, cost shifting is a real problem. Basically, what's happening is the government in programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, they're underpaying uh, doctors in hospitals. It's in, it, Let's take Medicaid as an example. The, the payment rates tend to be so low that it's hard for doctors in hospitals to deliver care because they're not getting their costs covered. So they play games like, well, they'll say, well, we're not taking any more patients right now. In other words... You got Medicaid, we don't want to help you. Or uh, they make you wait a long time for an appointment and, and stuff like that, rationing. Uh, why is that? I mean, Medicaid basically only pays about 25% of what a private commercial health insurance plan would pay for the same item or service. So, of course, you're going to get lower access to care, lower quality. 
And um, Medicare is better. It's about 50% of what a private commercial health insurance plan would pay for the same item or surface. So Medicare, you know, the one for uh, the elderly and disabled, is twice as good as Medicaid uh, in terms of paying doctors and hospitals. So it's twice as good in terms of patient access and so on. But it's still not good enough. We need to pay doctors and hospitals what their services are worth. And um, But, of course, Medicare is going broke. So how do we make the math work? Well, like I said, we maybe don't waste money. Uh, we don't give it to people who don't need it, first of all. And second, uh, here's here's an example. Medicare, for historic and, uh, you know, uh, just lobbying reasons, crony reasons, pays hospital-based doctors three times as much as they pay uh, independent community-based physicians for the same item or service. Exact same service, they pay three times as much just because he's considered part of a hospital. Well, guess what? Hospitals go out of their way now to try to pretend that everything, uh, part of their network is a hospital. So they'll buy a physician's group practice and they'll call it a hospital. And then they get three times as much money for the same item or service. This is pure waste. And this should end. We call this site-neutral payment. In other words, it doesn't matter where you get it. If it's a certain service, you should get a certain, paid a certain amount for it. If you do that, you get more competition. People will try to be more efficient in delivering the service. So you could, by doing that, you could take 200 to $300 billion, with a B, out of Medicare, pure waste. You wouldn't cut anybody's benefits. And by the way, seniors would also get $150 billion in savings because they have to pay part of their cost through their uh, cost sharing in Part B. So they would save money too, individual seniors. This is an example of the kind of reform you need. And going back to your original question, it means we need leadership. We need our politicians to recognize that something has to be done. There are things we can do that make a lot of sense, that don't hurt people, and they should do them. Here's a question. Is this why so many rural hospitals are closing? Very good question. Yeah, the, the main reason the rural hospitals are closing in high numbers at this time is Obamacare. Back in 2010, during that debate, the actuaries at the Medicare agency put out a letter, basically an, a warning. They said, if you adopt this legislation as drafted, because the payment rates in Medicare will be cut, that's how they funded Obamacare, was by cutting Medicare. Democrats like to use Medicare as a piggy bank to pay for other things. Really? Yes. $700 billion they cut out of Medicare to fund Obamacare subsidies. And the actuaries at Medicare said, well, you're going to have hospitals closing all over the country in 10 to 15 years if you do that. And sure enough, that's exactly what's happening. Congress didn't care. They, they thought Obamacare was so important that they were willing to, uh, to close all these rural hospitals. Of course, you know, most people don't make the connection and they don't know who to blame. But it was Obamacare that's, that's doing that. Now, it's because me me Medicare payment rates were cut. Doctors and hospitals were cut as a result of Obamacare. We need to pay doctors and hospitals more, but we need to cut out the waste so we can afford to do that. Well, you know, the other thing that seems to be proliferating are these hospital branches. There must be something behind that. Uh, here in our area, that becomes kind of the status quo now. I mean, What's what's behind that? I'm, well, sir, certainly I'm all for it if it gets you more service and, you know, the service is great. Usually, though, they're stocked by the emergency room guys and not the specialists, of course, 
you'll need to go to the big hospital for that. So what's that, that's um, that branching. They're, basically, hospitals are becoming regional monopolies, and they're doing it for the reason I said earlier. They, they, they buy up local outpatient clinics, physician practices, and so on. They, they, they then rename them as part of our hospital network, and then they bill programs like Medicare as if those were hospital facilities, even though they're not, and so they can just get more money out of federal taxpayers and in doing this, of course, they reduce competition because now all the doctors have been turned into, in effect, employees of the local hospital conglomerate. This is actually a serious problem in some states. Pennsylvania, they only have really two healthcare companies in the whole state. Everybody is, they have no choice. It's one or the other. I was in a meeting with a room full of people from Pennsylvania. Somebody said, okay, who in this room is not part of UPMC or Hallmark, not Hallmark, uh, Altmark, uh, forget, forgetting the name of the other conglomerate, not one hand went up. They were all part of one or the other monopoly. In uh, in Indiana, basically, one group, I think it's HCA, it dominates 80% of the market in the state. Um, we need to deal with this. And part of it is fixing the Medicare payments, you know, and ending this game playing where they pretend to be hospitals when they're not. Somebody's asking about dental care and under Medicare. Is that also part of the Advantage plan? Yes. If you go into Medicare Advantage, and it is optional, and about half of people on Medicare have done this, um, you you have to choose which plan you want to be in. It's a competing system. And you just look to see, do they offer uh, dental benefits? Many of them do. Uh, also, vision and hearing benefits. Those are not standard benefits in traditional Medicare. You have to go into Medicare Advantage if you want to add those to your Medicare. This uh, listener says that his dentist won't accept the Medicare because of the low percentage payout. Is there anything to that? That's probably true. And it goes back to, well, I I shouldn't say it's probably true. It may be true in your area. It probably varies geographically, but, um, and it also varies by the, the provider. The dentist may just simply charge higher rates. Maybe he's of higher quality or he just has higher costs. So he feels Medicare underpays him, and so he refuses that. And that's fine. In a free market, doctors should be able to say, dentists should be able to say, sorry, that's just not enough you know, money to cover the cost of this uh, service. Uh, so it goes back to the point that uh, uh, Medicare should pay sufficiently. Um, in this case, it's, uh, it's a private uh, com- insurance company. The Medicare Advantage plan has obviously set its dental payment rates too low at least for that one doctor. Now, I, you know, maybe that there are dentists who will take the rates, but what you want is a competitive system. You know, it comes down to a basic question. Who do you trust with your health care, the government or your own doctor in a competitive market? And I think most people would say, ultimately, my own doctor. Well, we certainly have drifted a long way away from the old-timey doctor that my, we had when we lived in the Ozark Mountains who um, you could bring a sack of potatoes to him <laughs> he that as payment for like for giving you a physical. I mean, give him a chicken. Yeah, yeah. You bring him a bring. Him, you know, it was value to him. So uh, right, done a lot. That was done a lot in the Ozark Mountains. You know, and but we did have some doctors there that deliberately were from Arkansas. This is where this was. Who you know wanted to set up shop and practice there in the mountains and mm-hmm. and uh, weren't all that seriously uh, interested in going in the big city and all that, which I seen. Uh, probably more difficult to do, I guess. Uh, 
What about, we got another question here. What is, what is going on with the so-called doc in the box? They're not doctors, but they're, are they filling the niche, you know, nurse practitioners? And uh, what is that about? Right. Well, uh, yeah, you might go to uh, a shopping mall or Walmart, and there might be a little stall or, uh, you know, cubicle there where you basically, there's a nurse there, and you can uh, you can get your temperature taken, your blood pressure. And, uh, you know, in some states, uh, they can even make do some prescriptions. Uh, and there's probably other uh, varieties of this. Of course, you have urgent care clinics and uh, minute clinics and all these varieties of uh, sort of care that isn't just a doctor's office or a hospital. I think it's a great development. It's, you know, it's, it's market forces at work. Now, you may ask yourself, well, is an advanced uh, nurse, is a nurse practitioner as good quality as a physician? Well, some people don't think so. My own wife, for example, refuses to see a nurse. She always insists on a physician. I'm not so picky. My feeling is a lot of nurses are quite good for what they're licensed to do and trained to do. Uh, there are some things they're not, so you, you really need a physician. Um, but not every physician is created e equal either. The ones who have more experience and, and better training tend to be higher quality. I mean, so um, so Doc in a Box is a way to try to meet people's desires. I think it's driven by the fact that healthcare costs so much. People are looking for affordable options and also convenient options. And um, I think it's a good thing. And um, but I'm not sure what, where the uh, the the questioner was going with that, except curiosity. I think how it works is there's a physician here locally who's never at that place, but is people are working under that position with whom they right. can consult if they need to for a problem bigger right. than they understand. And sure. well, I'm telling you, it's very much used and uh, very much used and because they get in and out quickly and they get a lot of the things that they're concerned about are not the higher threshold need. So, right. But they do want to have somebody address them. And, uh, you know, so they've got a couple here that are doing very, very well. Um, I don't haven't been there myself, but I know where they are and, and who's using them. And I think they probably, uh, to a certain extent, can. But they're operating as an extension of a physician's license. I see. And physician. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Most states have something called collaborative agreement requirements. Basically, if you're a nurse and you want to practice independently, they basically say you can't. You have to be associated with a physician. And... Um, uh, you know, so you, so basically you set up an agreement with a physician, but you're still independent. You're at, you're separate, but you, you're, you're under the supervision, uh, formally. The fact is the physician's not there looking over your shoulder. He's, as you said, remote. He's somewhere else. And, um, my, our feeling at Americans for Prosperity is those rules tend to be a little too restrictive. We should let nurses, uh, for example, there'll be a limit geographic. You may not be more than so many miles away from the physician. Well, you know, we want nurses to go into rural areas, for example, so maybe let that geographic limit be a little bit bigger. Um, also, um, we like the idea that after so many hours under supervision, you should just release them and say, okay, now you can practice independently. You know, you've shown that you can do this, and you don't have to, because part of these agreements is the nurse has to pay a fee to the physician for the privilege mm. of delivering health care, and that those fees can be quite expensive for the nurses. So, we think, uh, you know, a little reform is necessary there. We have a question here that a lot of people may not be familiar with, but I certainly am. The hospitalist mm -hmm. um, has really replaced 
your personal physician coming to see you. And what this hospitalist does is he goes to the computer and he looks at what the previous hospitalist put in. And uh, these people are really traveling physicians in many cases, don't want to practice. People wonder about the quality of that system. They don't completely think that that hospitalist is a, you know how it is when you're, when you need a doctor, you want a friend as much as anything else. That's right. Because a lot of the things you just can't be treated for ultimately, as we know. And um, so anything, any research on hospitalists and how they're used? Well, a hospitalist, of course, is a physician who works in a hospital. Um, and they're very important and necessary. They're, the other kind is the physician who's outside the hospital. But, of course, he has privileges to, you know, check his patients into the hospital. And he does things in the hospital for his patients. The, the hospitalist is an employee of the hospital, whereas the independent physician is not. And one problem with physicians being employees is that they come under pressure, financial pressure. Uh, you talked about meeting quotas and so on. And I think that does happen to hospitalists. It's like you got to keep moving and you got to fill out all these forms. And um, I think it's a shame that, that the practice of medicine has become an unpleasant profession because so much of it is inputting information that's really being used to make sure bills get paid and less time being spent delivering care to patients. And there, and in hospitals, you do have the problem of it's a little bit like a conveyor belt. You're laying in the bed there and a pop, you, you notice there's a doctor standing at the end of the bed. And then a little while later, there's a, there's a different doctor. And the next day, it's still a different doctor, but they're supposedly doing the same job. And it's like, you know, do these people, you know, what if they make a paperwork mistake? You know, they don't really know my story. They're just looking at records, like you said. So um, the, the best solution for this, this problem, of course, is uh, to remove barriers uh, to competition. Competition solves so many problems. And, you know, paying them sensibly, like we've been talking about. Uh, and then, you know, ideally, most physicians would be independent, um, we, we, we don't want the government to dictate any of this, but we want to remove barriers so that patients get the best possible care. We've been talking with Dean Clancy this hour, and we've been taking some of your questions and concerns here in the chat line. Uh, and we really appreciate your participation. We know that our, our viewership is uh, such that they probably are very interested in what we're talking about. Uh, we've got about uh, four or five minutes left. Anything you want to sum up with, Dean, that we've omitted or uh, haven't covered or... Uh, uh, that I've missed in this uh, chat line here. No, I I think this has been a wonderful conversation. I really your your questions are very good, and your your listeners, and um, it, it's fun because usually I don't get to get into the weeds as much as we've done here. And I would just say, uh, you know, we got an election coming up. Uh, healthcare is going to be a dominant theme in the election, and just uh, you know, listen to these candidates and figure out, are they trying to just sell you more government or more big insurance, or are they trying to sell you more choice and control for you, the patient? At Americans for Prosperity, we call that a personal option approach to health reform. And that's what you should be looking for in candidates and in policy changes. And as I said earlier, we can fix these big government programs like Medicare without cutting benefits or raising taxes, but we have to be sensible about it and we have to be willing to make um, make the changes. And uh, if you want to learn more about uh, what we're doing on healthcare and, and maybe get involved, sign up for updates, and even sometimes you could take action, like 
uh, we, we can we write letters that you can then just hit send on to your uh, elected officials. Um, go to our website, which is personaloption.com, personaloption.com, and sign up. We'd really love to have your help. Well, I was just going to ask you for about that, and you beat me to it. So uh, <laughs> we'll have that on the uh, – and we'll distribute this pretty pretty widely. Uh, I'm not sure whether we lost Dean there or not. Uh, um, we may have. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing only myself now. If that's the case, why uh, we certainly had a wonderful show talking with Dean Clancy, and uh, we hope we'll, we'll spread this out, spread this link. If you want to have people kind of be informed about what's going on here in the medical world, this is certainly an in-depth discussion we've had. Uh, so please share that among your friends who might be interested. And other than that, have a great weekend. We're going to check out a couple of minutes early here, and uh, have the um, take care of your health. And uh, hopefully, you appreciated this uh, update on the show. Warthog Command Center out.